Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be preaching on verses 1 through 19, but I'm going to read the first three verses here. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The title of my message this morning is Faith in Action. Faith in Action. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today, for the beauty of your word, O oh God, for the truth of your word. May your Holy Spirit, O oh God, minister the truth of your word today through these lips of clay to the hearts of your people. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, the first three Sundays of this month, Pastor was focusing on prayer, preaching our theme that you see on the wall behind me. And in last week, he added to that the companion to prayer, and that is fasting. And um, today, I want to talk about faith which is what we have to exercise after we pray. So once we pray, faith relates to prayer in this way. We have to trust God and trust him for the answers to the prayers that we have prayed. Faith is our lifestyle as the people of God. It is how we live, it is how we walk through this life that God has given us. The dictionary, <clears throat> excuse me, defines faith as confidence or trust in a person or thing. Confidence or trust in a person or thing. And even the dictionary definition implies that faith comes out of a relationship of trust with someone or something. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer doesn't define faith, but he does tell us what it is. He says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is, is putting our trust in God and having confidence that that which we put our trust in God for is going to come to pass, and then faith gives us assurance about the things that haven't been manifested as yet, that in the future God is going to manifest those things. For instance, <clears throat> by way of example, our Lord Jesus Christ promised that he would come back again. And I don't know about you, but I believe that by faith. Because God said it. I don't need any other reason. God said it. So I believe it's going to come to pass. But I haven't seen it yet because it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't manifested itself as yet. 
But faith keeps me going. I have the assurance that is going to come to pass, even if it never happens in my lifetime, I will die with the expectation that Jesus Christ is coming back. As so many other Christians before me have done the same. So, faith is trusting in God and having confidence in his word. It is our assurance until God delivers on what he has promised. Until faith becomes sight. So in other words, faith is the expectation that God will do as he says in his word. And once again, relationship is the most important precursor to faith. The Old Testament saints that the writer of the Hebrews goes on and, and speaks about beginning in verse 4, they had faith in a God that they knew. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think the average person goes around trusting strangers. Some of us have difficulty trusting people we know. But you can't trust God if you don't know God. Jesus sometimes accused his disciples of having little faith or of doubting him. In Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he met a little boy there who had a demon. And his father told Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples to cast out this demon, but they weren't able to do it. And so Jesus rebuked the demon and cast it out of the little boy. Later on that day, his disciples came to him and they asked him, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? Here is Jesus' response in verse 20 of Matthew 17. He replied, because you have so little faith. He said, because the faith that you have is not enough. So how much faith did they need? He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed. If the seed wasn't so dark and you dropped just one in the palm of your hand, you wouldn't even realize it was there. It feels like nothing. And it is so small, it almost looks like nothing. And it certainly doesn't, doesn't look as if this huge mustard shrub could come from that one little seed. But Jesus said, that's all you need to move mountains. So the disciples had less faith than the size of a mustard seed. But that wasn't Jesus' point. Jesus' point was, it had nothing to do with the size of your faith, really. But it has to do with the size of your God. The power of your God. 
You see, it's not, it's not the faith that you have, it's who that faith is in. Is your faith in the one who will not disappoint? He may delay because he has his purposes and plans that are unknown to us, but he will not disappoint. He will do exactly what he says. So if God told you, this is the 11 o'clock service, so if he told you, I'm going to pick you up at 10.30 this morning, you could plant your corn by that. 10.30, God is going to be outside your door. How many of you have heard that same promise and then the person shows up, you know, 45 minutes late and made you late for church? Made you go and want to take your clothes off. Because now you got to do that walk of shame. I know some of you all did that this morning. But but God doesn't disappoint. He does what he says he will do. And so when your faith is in him, you can count on it. You know he's going to do it. And he's a God with whom nothing is impossible. And if the only faith you have is the grain of a mustard seed, if you put that in God... Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we don't like thinking about the impossible. We want to think about the possible. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us that faith is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone is given this gift of faith in terms of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is going beyond beyond just the, the everyday faith in God now. This is having extraordinary faith in God to believe God to do extraordinary things. You know, some of us, we struggle with trusting God to do the everyday things. Lord, just get me through this day. You know, as, as if, you know, our lives are in danger and we wouldn't even live through the day. There are people who pray that prayer and that prayer seems almost impossible that they would make it through the day. I'm not saying don't pray that prayer. If you need it, certainly pray it. But the Spirit gifts us with faith to go way beyond that. When the rope is around our neck, we're still praying, Lord, get me through this day. But Romans 12 and 3 tells us what God does for all of us. He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. So Paul was telling this problematic for him, Corinthian church, that listen, I, because, because you, you have faith in God, don't think you're better than the next person. Because God has given all of us a measure of faith. 
God has given all of us the faith that we need to live this Christian life. He didn't save us and then leave us on our own. He gave us what we need to successfully live this Christian life, to successfully run our race and finish our course and keep the faith. God has already given us everything we need. The problem is on our side. We're not exercising the faith that God gave to us. This measure of faith is the common faith that God gives graciously to each one of us. This common, ordinary faith is the same faith God expects us to pray with, to live by, and to walk by every day of our lives. This is the faith, this common, ordinary faith that the writer to the Hebrews is speaking of in Hebrews 11. In verse 2 of Hebrews 11, he goes on, he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. The Old Testament saints were commended by God for their faith. And they were commended by God for their faith, even though for a lot of them, they had to trust God. They had to have faith in God to do something without precedent. They had to trust God to do something that they had never seen or heard him do for anybody else. Yet they somehow succeeded. And they succeeded without having the Holy Spirit alive in them, the power, without having the power of the Spirit working in them. Yes, the Spirit may have been on them, but we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have him every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So what's our excuse? They did what they did with less than what we have. Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You know, yesterday this verse really hit home to me. And it, it gave me better insight and better understanding of why so many people refuse to believe that God is the creator of the universe. The writer in Hebrews says, By faith... We understand that the universe was made by God's command. See, in the scripture, nowhere does it try to prove to us that God created the universe. It doesn't even try to prove to us that God exists. It just assumes that unless you choose to be totally rebellious, to the eternity that God has placed in our hearts, unless you want to totally ignore the beauty of God's creation, the glory of God's creation that speaks of a creator, it's just common sense. When you read the scriptures, to believe that God created the universe. But the writer to the Hebrew says, we understand this, we can say this, because we have faith in this God who created the universe. When people lack that faith, it's no surprise that they don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Because they have rejected God. 
They have rejected the knowledge that God put into their hearts. We can't understand this apart from faith, he says. In Romans 4, 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Speaking of Abraham, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So speaking of the creation, God simply spoke. God simply issued the command and the universe sprung into existence. This is a God in whom we can trust. This is a God in whom we can have confidence. Who simply commanded it on a 100 billion galaxies were born like that. I don't know about you, but I haven't been asking God for 100 billion galaxies. So if he can do that, what can't he do? That's the key question. These Old Testament saints were commended by God for their faith. So let's examine their legacy this morning. Theirs was a legacy of faith. A legacy of faith. Beginning with Abel. Abel's faith was demonstrated by prioritizing God's will. In Hebrews 11.4 it says, By faith Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. God recognized Abel as being righteous. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Most people know the story of Cain and Abel, even if they say don't, they don't believe that God created the universe. They've heard this story. And so, just like the writer says, his faith still speaks for him to this day. You know, <clears throat> Abel's faith proved that we are able to do what God requires of us simply because God required it. We don't need any other reason. We don't need no other explanation. We just need to know that this is what God's required or this is what God requires. And like Abel, we simply do it because he's God. Genesis 4, 2 to 5 tells us this story very, very briefly. It says, now Abel kept flocks. He was a shepherd. And Cain worked the soil. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So he slaughtered some of the firstborn lambs from his flock, or maybe kids from the goats, and he offered them as a sacrifice to God. And it says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. See, Abel was careful to do what God required. And Cain simply did what his own heart desired. Like he said, okay, 
I have these fruits that come from my farm. I'm going to offer these to God. God better accept it. You know, that may sound strange, but we sometimes do the same thing. We come to God and we offer him what we want to offer him. Disregarding what God may have said he requires. We give what we want to give. And even sometimes we give God the things we don't want. And that's what Cain did. He did what he wanted rather than what God asked for. What God required. Now I know I've I've heard Christians say many times over the years, you know, that, that God was unfair to Cain. In 1 John 3.12, John tells us, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. When, when Cain brought his offering and God rejected it, he not only got mad with God, he got mad with his brother. His brother didn't do him anything. His brother simply did what God asked. And it was almost like he was saying, Oh, you pleased with him, eh? took him out in the field and killed him and said, now take that God. Now who you could be pleased with? Only me one left. But see, God wasn't unfair to Cain. Abel had the same requirement. Even if Abel was a tailor and not a a herdsman, not a shepherd, he still would have been required to bring a blood sacrifice. This was the sacrifice that God required for sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You can't bring fruit when you're supposed to bring meat. In Genesis 4, 6, and 7, it says, Then the Lord said, said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God didn't just reject Cain's offering. God gave him a warning. God said, if you want to be accepted, simply do what is right. Simply do what I require. Cain instead went out and killed his brother. Why would anybody feel sorry for him? Now you may say, oh, well, you know, Cain offered what he had. You know, he wasn't a herdsman. He only had fruit, so he brought that. Why didn't God accept that? God declares that Abel was righteous. So if he had brought some of those nice, you know, roots, you know, the sweet potatoes and the carrots and the potatoes, 
you know, and offer them to Abel for his lamb stew, Abel probably would have given him a lamb that he could then sacrifice to God. Even beyond that, God said Abel was righteous. So if he went to his brother and said, listen, I don't have a lamb for, for the sacrifice that we have to give tomorrow, Abel would have given him a lamb. He wasn't concerned with doing what God required. He said, I don't care what God requires. This is what I'm going to do. And then he got upset when God didn't accept it. We sang about it in that scary song this morning. Take my life. Let it be a sacrifice. You can't do that and then say, Lord, don't take this part. You can't say, Lord, I'm going to put my hand on the altar and even my feet, but not my head. Abel simply did what God asked him to do. And that was a demonstration of his faith. He was recognized for his faith. Enoch's faith was demonstrated by pleasing God. It says in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. He ple his life was pleasing to God. So much so that God says, you know what? I'm not even going to wait for you to die. I'm going to take you into my presence alive. Now, we can't even fathom what that is like. Then it goes on to say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Enoch pleased God, so we know Enoch had to have faith. Because you can't please God without faith. He says, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he re rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, on the surface, we often think it's difficult to live our lives in a way that, that's pleasing to God. Some of us think it's impossible. I'm sure Enoch was not perfect. And God doesn't require perfection from us. He requires obedience. And when we fall, he requires repentance. In Genesis 5, 22 to 24, it says, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Enoch walked faithfully with God. The writer Moses even repeats it. That's why his life was pleasing to God. He lived his life with his faith and his trust firmly rooted in his God. And God says, I'm so pleased. Come up here. 
And Enoch did this again without the presence of the Holy Spirit living in him every day. So what's our excuse? Only two people, Enoch and the prophet Elijah, experienced what Enoch did. Elijah was taken up in the chariots of fire into heaven. But he lived his life to please God. That's how he demonstrated his faith. Noah's faith was demonstrated by his reverence for God. In Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. In other words, God warned him that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. Noah had never seen a flood. He had never heard of a flood. No one had ever seen a flood. It says, in holy fear, in reverence, he built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah's reverence for God. His holy fear of God. Is how he demonstrated his faith. God says, I'm sending a flood, build an ark. It's going to save you and your family, and I want you to bring all these animals in. Seven pairs of some, two pairs of others, and I'm going to destroy all flesh on the earth other than those inside that ark. You know what Noah did? He spent the next hundred years building an ark because he had reverence for God. He did it not because he understood God's plan, not because he had all the details, not because he knew what a flood was. He did it because God told him to. See, most of us would never admit that we lack reverence for God. You think, oh yeah, man. The fear of God is, is established in my heart. I reverence God. Can you count the commands you disobeyed this week on one hand? I, I, I can't. You know, I, our reverence for God is demonstrated by doing what God tells us to do. How do we say we reverence God? I know I get no amen to this. And God says, don't gossip. And we can't get through a single day without getting involved in gossip. God tells Noah he's going to destroy all the flesh on the earth with a flood. He gave, gives him these instructions, the design of the ark. And this design was so amazing. You know, they still build boats today with that same design, that same um, dimensions in terms of, you know, um, not, I don't mean exactly the same size, but the ratio of the size is built into just about every single boat, even to this day. 
God didn't give Noah all the details of his plan, but that didn't stop Noah from doing what God said. In Genesis 6, it says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And Noah's faith proves that we can do what God tells us to do even when we don't have all the information. Noah didn't interrupt God and say, oh, 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 hold on God, what's a flood? The flood was not Noah's concern. God said he's going to send a flood, a flood is coming. Whatever it is, it's coming. God said build a boat. That was Noah's concern. He built the boat. We don't need to have all the information. We don't need to know every aspect, every detail of God's plan. We simply need to know God said it, and then we go out and do it. That's what Noah was commended for. He had reverence for God that says, God said this, I must do it. Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his simple obedience to God. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Get this. Abraham's faith proves that you and I can follow God's leading without knowing the destination. God says, get up, leave your city, leave your family, leave all that stuff behind and go to a place I'm going to show you later. We pack our bags. We go back before God and say, Father, I've taken my stand, my bags are packed, just waiting to find out where I'm going. See, a rudder is that huge instrument at the rear of a ship that allows that ship to turn in the direction where the captain wants it to go. But the rudder is of no use when the boat is moored in the harbor. You could go on that boat and you could turn that wheel which will turn that rudder all you want. That boat is going to stay exactly where it is. See? If you want God's direction, if you want God to steer you in the direction he wants you to go, you need to start moving. If Abraham stayed in Ur of the Chaldees, he would have died in Ur of the Chaldees. If he waited to find out where God was taking him or where God was leading him, he would have died where he was. Because God said, I'm going to show you later. You know? We can't, we can't wait the rest of the day and say, oh, Lord, it's later. Time to show me, but you haven't moved yet. God gave you all the information you needed. Go. You know, if you go out the wrong gate of the city, heading in the wrong direction, fine. God is going to steer you in the right direction. But you need to get moving. Nothing's going to happen 
Until you move, God says, this is going to be a land that I'm going to give you as an inheritance. It isn't going to come with you and her the Chaldees. God is not going to say, listen, I've given you the land of Palestine. It's, it's yours. Now go. Where would the faith be in that? There'd be no faith in that. If Abraham got up and leave, there was no reason for God to commend him for his faith. But he, he got up and left her, the Chaldees, when he didn't know what his destination was. The key thing was he knew it was God who was leading him. And so he could go. In God's time, God would reveal the, the um, destination. That's faith. Faith is not saying, God, I believe you. And as soon as you tell me where I'm going, I'm going to get on my way. Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his obedience to God. In Genesis 12, 1, it tells us simply, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God said, go. Abraham went. End of story. Well, not really. Beginning of story. In Romans 15, 4, it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, all these stories we have of all these Old Testament saints written down in the scriptures and how God rewarded and commended their faith is encouragement for us and hope for us that God is going to do the same thing when we put the same kind of faith in him. Some of these Old Testament saints had no precedent. God was going to do stuff for them for the very first time. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He hadn't done that for anybody else before. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, but more than just believed, he did what God told him. It's easy to say we believe. Obeying is another separate step. And sometimes that's where we, that's where we stumble. So if God says go and you don't go, do you really believe? So we've seen this legacy of faith that these Old Testament saints have left behind. And from their examples, we can be encouraged. We have hope that we can now live a lifestyle of faith. In James 2, 18 to 20, it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. He says, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James is saying it's easy to say you have faith. 
But faith can only be demonstrated by what you do with what you say you believe. You believe there's one God? Are you serving him? See, if you say you believe there's one God and you're serving him, that's faith. If you say you believe that there's only one God, you and the demons are on the same level. Because they don't serve God. But they know he exists and they know there's only one God. James says, your faith is only demonstrated by what you do. If you say you believe God, then you should be doing the things you say you believe. So how, how do we develop a lifestyle of faith? A lifestyle of faith believes the promiser in spite of not actually receiving the promise. Let me repeat that. A lifestyle of faith believes the promiser in spite of not actually receiving the promise. promise. In Hebrews 11, 9 to 10, it says, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, meaning Abraham. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. God renewed the promise he gave to Abraham to Isaac, and then he renewed the promise he gave to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. But it says, For they were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never got to own the land that God promised to them. God said, this is going to be to you and your descendants, not just to your descendants. He said, this is going to be your land and your descendants are going to possess it. But when Abraham's wife Sarah died, and he needed some place to bury her, he didn't own any land. And even though the owner of the land that he wanted, the cave where he wanted to bury his wife, um, he, the man was willing to give it to him for free. But Abraham said, you know what? This is not how God promised I would receive this. God didn't say they were going to give it to me. God said he was going to give it to me. So God hasn't given it to me yet. And so I'm going to buy it from you. You see? It's just like when he went after the kings that had, that had defeated the armies of Sodom. And Lot and some others were taken captive. Abraham rallied the men of his household. And they went and they defeated those kings. And they brought back not only the people but all the plunder they had taken from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, listen... You know, we're so glad you brought the people back, but you could keep all the spoils. Abraham said, no, I won't take anything. Only the men who were with me, let them take their portion. But you're not going to tell anybody you made Abraham rich. Because God said he would bless me. God said he would make me a great nation. I don't have to take that from you because I'm trusting in God to do what he promised. See, Abraham had already made the mistake. God said, listen, I'm going to give you a son. And Sarah wouldn't get pregnant, or she couldn't get pregnant. And so Sarah said, huh, take my maid. I can have children through her. Abraham said, no, you're not going to say you made me rich. I'm not taking anything. 
Abraham never got to own the land that God promised him. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. But that didn't stop them from passing on their faith in the one who promised it. You see? And so Abraham blessed Isaac. And Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, his sons. And Jacob blessed his sons, taking the sons of Joseph onto his knees. And then Joseph, when he was about to die, made his, his family swear that when God took them out of Egypt to the land that he had promised his great-grandfather, he said, y'all got to dig up my bones and bury me there. They passed on their legacy of faith in spite of the fact that they never received the promise that God had given to them. But they had faith. They believed the promiser. They didn't have to actually see the promise manifested. God said he would do it and that was good enough for them. That was as good as gold. That was as good as money in the bank as far as they were concerned. We live this lifestyle of faith. This lifestyle of faith regards the promiser above the things promised. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and 12, it says, By faith, even Sarah, the one who laughed when God said, You know, your wife told Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. She laughed. And the angel said, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah said, I, I, I didn't laugh. She did laugh at first. But it says Sarah, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. See, the promise would mean nothing if she didn't know that God was faithful to do what he promised. And enable her to get pregnant at 90 years old. Abraham, her husband, being 100. To remember the fact that they laughed when God said they would have a son. They named him Laughter. Isaac. That's what it means, laughter. You see, the promise seemed impossible. But the promiser was trustworthy. You see? The one who promised was faithful to do it. And so that's why they, they could believe it. And so their relationship was God, with God was more important than even the things that God had promised them. So the Christian life is about our relationship with God, not about what we can benefit by serving him. Abraham had a relationship with God that recognized God had already proved himself faithful to what he promised. Abraham's wealth um, um, expanded exponentially when he started following God. He became so wealthy. The land where, where him and Lot had settled and God brought, blessed Lot through Abraham, his nephew. God blessed his nephew as well. And, and, and their wealth, their, their, their flocks 
became so great, they had to separate, they had to go different ways. God proved himself faithful, and he made Abraham great. And they believed, Abraham and Sarah, that God would prove himself faithful once again. God said, listen, this time next year, there's going to be the cooing of a baby in your tent. So said, so done. Romans 4.18, it says, against hope, see, against hope in the natural, Abraham believed in hope in the spiritual, with the result that he became the father of many nations, according to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. In Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abraham and Sarah, they, they had greater regard for God, the one who made the promise, than they had for the thing promised. And Abraham would later prove that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But living this lifestyle of faith is what God calls us to do. And a lifestyle of faith, in the third place, focuses on the promiser without being distracted by the unfulfilled promise. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. In other words, they never got to see the land in their possession. It didn't happen in their lifetime. Just like I said earlier, God may not come back in our lifetime, but we die living by faith that he's coming back. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to, to return. Abraham, while he was living as a stranger in the land of Canaan, he wasn't thinking about Ur the Chaldees. Man, I'd be better off if I go back there. At least I had a house. What's with all these tents? He says in verse 15, if they'd been thinking of the country they left, they could go back. They would have the opportunity to, to return. Instead, they were looking forward. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never received what was promised. But they were focused on their eternal home. Their focus was on the one who made the promise, on the promiser. They went around lamenting the fact that, you know, when is God going to ever give us this land? No, they weren't looking at their lack. Because how could you really say they lacked? They may not have had a permanent home, but they were pretty wealthy. The thing about it is, they didn't focus on their present circumstances. They focused on God. You know, sometimes we get so bogged down thinking about what we lack in this life, we forget that this world is not our home. You know, 
If this isn't our home, we are going to lack certain things. Just like Abraham lacked a permanent home. It doesn't mean that we're not rich toward God. We are. It may not manifest itself in the physical. But that's why Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see? But sometimes we forget we're not supposed to feel at home in this world. So feeling a little bit uncomfortable, God is actually doing us a favor. It's a constant reminder to us that this world is not what we're looking to. The Bible says they were looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. It says God was preparing a city for them so they were on the right track. They weren't concerned that the, that the promise had not been fulfilled. They were too busy building their relationship with the promiser. Squire Parsons. I'm sure many of you don't know who that is. But he was a country gospel singer who understood this concept. This world is not our home. He wrote a song that goes like this. I'm kind of homesick for a country where I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will there be spoken, for time won't matter anymore. Beulah land, I'm longing for you. And someday on the Alstair, where my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. I'm looking now across the river where my faith will end in sight. There's just a few more days to labor, and then I'll take my heavenly flight. Beulah land, I'm longing for you. And someday on the stand, where my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, where is our longing for our heavenly home? Why are we so concerned with this earthly place that was never intended to be our home? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Bible says they were looking forward to a city that God would build for them with his own hands. That's why they weren't concerned that the promise that they would inherit the land of Canaan hadn't manifested itself yet. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, because we are not looking at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen, this earth, is temporary. But what cannot be seen, our heavenly home, is eternal. We can't see it with these physical eyes. But we can read the word of God and get a picture of it with our spiritual eyes. I heard, I heard the story of this man who, when he died, he was very wealthy. He converted all his wealth to gold, and he instructed his family to bury him with the gold. And so when he got to heaven, he had all this gold. An angel said to him, where are you going with all this tar? We walk on gold here, man. This is heaven. We get so focused on the temporary, on the here and now, we lose sight of the eternal. 
Finally, living this life of faith or this uh, lifestyle of faith trusts the promiser more than it loves what he promised. Abraham got one of the things that God promised. He got a son. In Hebrews 11, 17, and 18, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He had embraced the promises about, um, he that embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac loved, Abraham loved Isaac with all his heart, but he trusted God even more than that. God tested Abraham. But Abraham's relationship with God stood up even under the most stressful possible test. God said to him in Genesis 22 verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. See, just in case, you know, Abraham was smart and said, oh, I love Ishmael, let me carry him. God said, no, Isaac and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Abraham didn't say to God, but God, you never required human sacrifice. Why do you want me to sacrifice my son? How can you get glory from this? You said it's an abomination to sacrifice children on the altar. You said the pagans do that. Those who have rebelled against you. No. Abraham put the wood on the donkey, took his torch, took his son and went to Mount Moriah. And Isaac said to him, Lord, we have the fire, we have the wood, but I don't see the lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham's reply was Yahweh, Jireh. The Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham built the altar, put the stones, put the wood on the altar, he bound the hands of Isaac, put Isaac on the altar. He raised the knife, was about to bring it down into the heart of Isaac, and God stopped his hand. God said, now I know. I know that you trust me even more than you love your son. And he said, there's a lamb caught in the thicket over there. Get that, let that be the sacrifice. See, Abraham didn't understand the request, but he trusted God. God said it, and Abraham said, I have to obey. I don't know how God is going to work this out, but God said, my seed, my descendants are going to come through Isaac. So even if I slay Isaac and burn his body to ashes on this altar, 
My descendants are going to go through Isaac. So God is going to have to raise him up from these ashes. He loved his son, but he trusted God even more. So that's why he could pack his donkey and take his son and go to Mount Moriah. Because he trusted God. God is not going to ask you or me to sacrifice our children. But he is going to ask us to sacrifice. If Abraham, a man without the Holy Spirit in him, could set out to obey that command, what can God ask of us? that we could possibly say, Lord, I, I, I can't do that. Let me end with this. These Old Testament saints left a legacy of faith, even without the power of the Holy Spirit living in them. So what's our excuse? How do we leave this world without leaving a legacy of faith behind? It all begins with us living a lifestyle of faith. And why is this so important? Because we are people of faith. We are people of faith. Our faith in God should permeate, should permeate every area of our lives, every decision we make, whether it's personal decision, family decision, even our business decision should be based on our faith in God. First Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. Romans 1, 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. And then back to Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Are you a God pleaser? What legacy will you leave for your children and grandchildren and future generations when they look back at our life? Will they see a legacy of faith or a legacy of unbelief and faithlessness? There was a song that was very popular in the late 80s and early 90s, it said, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. Think about that. We can look back at these Old Testament saints and we can see their legacy of faith in spite of the hardship they endured, in spite of how difficult it was for them at times, in spite of how much God called on them to believe, to have faith in him for, we look back on their lives and we call them faithful. What will our legacy be? If we haven't already started, it must begin today with us living a lifestyle of faith that put God's God above all. 
that focus not on the promises of God, but on God the promiser. To esteem him, to regard him above everything that we could possibly gain by serving him. That's what God calls on us to do. That's what he expects of us. No different from what he expected of of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Abel or Enoch or Noah. God still expects a life of faith from us. And we as God's people, it's how we live. It's how we walk. It's how we get through this life every day by our faith in God. Let's stand together. Father.